Let us pray. O Almighty God, who has knit together thine elect in one communion and fellowship, in the mystical body of thy Son, Christ our Lord, grant us grace so to follow thy blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those ineffable joys which thou hast prepared for those who unfeignedly love thee. Through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who with thee in the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. Now that is the Collect for All Saints Day, because that is what today is. November the 1st is the Feast of All Saints. So, it's your feast day, and it's my feast day. Before we begin the lesson, a little bit of a teaching on saints. Uh, I hope you realize that from a biblical perspective, the word Christian and the word saint are synonymous. I think oftentimes when we think of saints, we think of people who have done great things on behalf of God, and as a consequence of their goodness, their greatness, their accomplishments, they go through some sort of a process of apotheosis, whereby they achieve this coveted status of sainthood. And certainly there are some parts of the Christian church that think of saints in those terms. But biblically speaking, there is absolutely no distinction between a saint and a Christian. All Christians are saints, and all saints are Christians. Now, sometimes you'll see that there are two different days or feasts celebrated in the Christian calendar. What is known as All Saints Day, November the 1st, and oftentimes the day that follows, which is known as All Souls That was changed in the Book of Common Prayer to the Feast of All the Faithful Departed uh, because Anglicans recognize that there really is no distinction uh, between what we would call the heroic saints, those who've done great things, and those who are just the everyday run-of-the-mill saints. And so that has been changed. The old language of all souls uh, is a holdover from the medieval period, and it is a Roman Catholic holiday. It is not necessarily an Anglican or a Protestant holiday. All Souls was to celebrate those who had been baptized but had not had the opportunity prior to their death to confess their sins and as a consequence could not go directly to heaven but ended up in purgatory where they would spend a period of time having their defilements purged away. Uh, But that is not the biblical notion at all. There's no distinction between the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or St. Augustine or St. Anselm and St. M, St. Emily Whipple, uh, uh, who is a saint. Uh, There's no distinction between you and the Apostle Paul, so Miss M, you are a saint like the rest. Absolutely. So that's just a little bit of, uh, a little bit of trivia before we begin today and as we begin to look at our calling as saints in the world, so just keep all of that in mind. So turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4 today. Uh, We're going to continue our discussion of Jesus' ministry or the beginning of his ministry. But before we get to that, we're going to take a look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We started this last week, but unfortunately we ran out of time. We talked about the nature of the temptation, but we didn't talk about how you and I, since we face temptations as well, find the ability to overcome them. So Matthew chapter 4 Let's go ahead and read through at least verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. When we started off last week, we said that one of the more striking elements of Jesus' ministry is that as he begins his ministry, we're told that immediately following his coronation service, if you will, his baptism in the Jordan River, he is led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by Satan. And we said what was really striking about this is the fact that Matthew bears witness to the fact that when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted, it was actually God himself who led Jesus there. And we said that's strange because every Sunday when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, lead us not into temptation. And yet Matthew tells us very distinctly, Mark is even more emphatic about it, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark says he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, what did that mean? Well, we said that the word that is translated here as tempted can also be translated tested. So Jesus was being led out into the wilderness to be tested. One of the things you'll notice if you read through the first three chapters of Matthew is that over and over again, certain titles are applied to Jesus. He is the Savior. He is the Son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the one who will deliver His people from their sins. Over and over again, Jesus is acclaimed to be the long-awaited, long-anticipated Redeemer of the world. But the question, of course, is, is He? Now, this is what he's been declared to be, but is he really the Savior? Is he really capable of being the new Adam, of undoing what the first Adam did? And that's what this temptation, this testing in the wilderness was really designed to be. It was a testing on the part of God to show Jesus in the same way that steel is tested or gold is tested in a fire. We talked about that old hymn that says, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, and what? Thy gold to refine. That, That was the idea. Jesus was being led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, where he would indeed be tempted by the devil, but all of this would be a testing that would prove his worthiness. Prove his worthiness to be the second Adam, to be all of the things that Matthew in those first three chapters has declared him to be. Now, of course, we said that was God's purpose. The devil's purpose was quite different. 
The devil's purpose actually was not to test Jesus, but to tempt Jesus, to bring about, if possible, the Lord's downfall. And we said that while the first Adam failed gloriously, the second Adam succeeded and triumphed gloriously. And then we took a look last week at how the devil operates. How is it that the devil tempted Jesus? Because we all face manifold temptations, every single one of us. And so it's helpful to see that the devil operates on Jesus in the same way that he operates on us. You remember the old Flip Wilson line, and any time he did something that he wasn't supposed to do, he would blurt out, the devil made me do it. Well, the first thing we need to understand when it comes to the devil is that the devil doesn't make anybody do anything. Now, certainly there are occasions that we find in the New Testament of what we would call demon possession, but that's in a completely different category. We're talking about temptation here. And when it comes to temptation, it's important that we understand that the devil doesn't force anybody to do anything. That is not how he operates. So you're not going to get off scot-free every time you do something bad by simply blaming it on the devil. If you think about it, that is exactly what the man tried to do at the very beginning. He didn't want to take responsibility for his own actions, and so he said, what? The woman that thou gavest me. That is the human tendency, always want to somehow excuse our own behavior, excuse our own sinful activity, and blame it on somebody else. One of the things we have to remember is that when it comes to temptation, and by the way, very few of us, probably none of us in this room today, have ever actually been tempted by the devil himself. I pointed out last week that unlike God, who is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent, the devil is not. Now, that's not to say that the devil is not a formidable foe. He certainly is. But he is not like God. He is not the opposite number of God. He's not the equal of God, just the opposite. He is a creature. He was created. God is the creator. God is infinite. He is finite. That means that the devil can't be at all places at all times. Now, he's wily, and he's been around for a very long time, and he certainly knows more than you and I know. But he is not capable of being at all places at all times, which probably means that very few people have ever actually been tempted by the devil himself. By and large, he probably has bigger fish to fry than you and me. But we certainly have been tempted by those who work for him, by demonic influences and powers. That's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. That's what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he wrote his book, The Screwtape Letters. But nevertheless, however the temptation comes to us, whether it's by the devil or whether it is by the devil's minions, the fact is it can be difficult. And it's helpful to look at how Jesus dealt with this temptation. First thing I want you to notice about the nature of Jesus' temptation here in Matthew chapter 4 is that it came in the form of doubt. This, generally speaking, is way the, the way the devil will always work on your life and mine. His ultimate goal, when all is said and done, his ultimate goal is to get you and me to doubt the trustworthiness of God's Word. Because when you begin to doubt the trustworthiness of God's Word, then everything you see is compromised at that point. Take a look at how the devil does it. 
Matthew chapter 4 says that after Jesus was baptized, now what happened at the Lord's baptism? We're told that when he came up out of the water, remember that he went into the water, first of all, he was nothing like the people that had gone out there to confess their sins. Jesus had not sinned in any way whatsoever. And John was baptizing people for repentance. That's the reason why when Jesus showed up there on the banks of the Jordan River, John the Baptist tried to prevent him, saying, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. You have no need of repentance. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we said that Jesus insisted that it be done to fulfill what? All righteousness. Which tells us that what Jesus was doing was that even though he was nothing like the people who'd gone out there to confess their sins and to change direction, he was nevertheless, for their sake, associating with them freely. And he went down into the waters of baptism and he associated himself with them even though he was nothing like them. And as a consequence of his obedience, we're told that when he came up out of the water, what? Latter part of chapter 3. And immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove, and coming and resting on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, that's significant. We said before that Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. It was rare in the Old Testament for an individual to refer to God as their father. Now, it was understood that God was, in a sense, the father of the nation of Israel, in the same way that George Washington is the father of America. But few Jews would have ever presumed to be so intimate when it came to God as to refer to him specifically as their individual father. And yet Jesus did that over and over again. So when he comes up out of that water and he hears the voice from heaven, and other people evidently heard it as well, declare, this is my son. Not just one of my children in general, but this is my son with whom I am well pleased. My goodness, that was a, that was a great moment in Jesus' life and, and ministry. God had declared him to be the promised Messiah. And yet look at how the devil operates. The devil comes to Jesus in verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If. He does it again. He goes on to say, verse 5, Then the devil took him up to a holy city and set him on the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down. You see how the devil operates? He says, are you sure that you actually heard God correctly? Are you really sure that you heard him say that you are his special son? You know, that's how the devil operates. He plants that seed of doubt in our minds or in our hearts and we, being weak, oftentimes do what? We fertilize it and we water it with all of our worry and all of our anxiety. And before long, it begins to take root in our lives and it begins to grow and it eventually takes over and it produces its poison fruit. And the result is that we are what? We are no good whatsoever for God. If you're filled with doubt and fear and anxiety, you really cannot be used for anything. You ever experienced that in your own life? 
That is exactly what the devil was doing to Jesus, and that's exactly what he does to us. I probably told you this story before, but it's a true story. We used to have a potting shed in our backyard when we lived in Beaufort. And uh, we lived in the historic district, and there's a historic district there just as there is here, and there are all kinds of covenants and restrictions and all that sort of thing. If you have to replace tiles on your roof, you have to replace them with a particular kind of tile, and you can't just paint your house any color that you want, all those rules and restrictions. Not necessarily a bad thing, but nevertheless, it's, it's a serious matter. And my boys, when they were younger, my two older boys, found a bunch of spray paint in the basement. And they thought that it would be wonderful to spray paint the potting shed. So they went to their mother and asked for permission. And their mother, at that point, was nine months pregnant with our fourth child. And she was exhausted, she was tired, and what she said to them was, don't do anything, I'm going to take a nap, wait till your father gets home and he'll talk to you about this. And so she went and she took a nap. Now I don't know exactly how it all played out, but I have an idea. One said to the other, did mom really say we should not spray paint the potting shed? And the other said, I don't know if she actually said we shouldn't spray paint the potting shed or we should wait until dad comes home before we spray paint the potting shed. And so the conversation went on and on and while mother was sleeping and dad was working, they painted the potting shed. I mean, they spray painted it. Red, white, and blue. So those are the three colors that were down in the basement. Their mother got up, looked, saw it, and was absolutely appalled. I mean, she was furious. She couldn't, she couldn't believe that they would do this. And the first thing she did is she called me. Well, my office was right across the street. It was an even shorter commuter than the one that I have now. And I mean, I, was, I set the state record for making that 200-yard dash. And I came across the street, and I came through the backyard, and they're standing back there with their spray paint cans, still in their hands, caught. Yes, knees knocking, terrified, sweat, perspiration. And I was ready to let them have it when I looked and they had written biblical verses all over the outside of that potting shed. Now, what do you do with that? Yeah, give them a hug. Well, they got the hug. Well, let's put it this way. They got the laying on of hands, but at any rate, that's exactly how the devil works, though, you see. Did you really hear this correctly? Did God actually say? Isn't that how he operated in Genesis? Isn't that how he operated? The serpent comes to the woman and he says, look at that tree over there. That's very attractive. Did God say you can't eat of that tree? In other words, did you hear him correctly? And Eve, of course, responds by saying, God did say. I think that's one of the most fascinating parts of the story, is that she makes it very clear, yes, God did say. And that's when the serpent says, well, God didn't mean that. 
See, he'll resort to an outright lie. That's one of the reasons why the New Testament describes him as the father of lies. But if he can get you without lying to you, if he'll let you do all of the hard work, he'll do so. He'll plant that seed of doubt in you. And that kind of doubt can come to you in any number of ways. Did God really say that it's wrong to watch that type of material on television? Did God really say that it's wrong to read that particular kind of book? Did God really say that you should give 10% of your income to the church? Did God really say? And sometimes it comes in that form in an effort to trip us up, to tempt us so that we might fall into sin. But sometimes it comes in another way, as I said, just to make us ineffectual. You've fallen into sin. You've committed some grievous act. And you know that it separates you from God. And you're sorry for it. And you've confessed your sins. And you've received absolution. And yet what? The devil comes to you and he says, Oh, do you think God can really forgive? Oh, yes, God forgives sins. But can he really forgive that sin? I mean, adultery is a serious crime. Did God really say he'd forgive that? Lying is a terrible thing. The devil's called the, the, the father of lies. That's why I'm condemned. Did God really say that he would forgive you that? You ever had those moments in your life when you have done something you know you shouldn't do and you live with regret and that regret paralyzes you? You feel that it somehow disqualifies you from being used by God. Have you ever had that kind of experience in your life? You think, I know God can forgive sins, but I just, <laughs> if you knew what I've done in my past, you would know that not even God can forgive that. We've all had those moments. We've all had those experiences. And yet the scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That his blood shed upon the cross was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of what? The whole world. So is there anything, anything at all, that can separate you from the love of God? Can height, nor depth, neither angels, nor principalities, things present, nor things to come? Can anything in all of creation separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? What? Anything? You don't sound too sure. Anything? Nothing. nothing. Uh, the devil comes and he says, oh yeah, I know he said nothing, but did he really mean it? <laughs> See, that's how temptation comes. And it paralyzes us. It makes us completely ineffectual. This is how sly the devil really is. And this is one of the reasons why, if we are not to be taken in, if we are not brought to the point where we doubt the Word of God, we must know the Word of God. The only way that you will ever be effective for God, the only way you will not be paralyzed, the only way you will not be taken in is if you know the Word of God. That's the only weapon at your disposal. Well, that's the way the devil operated on Jesus. But we discover here that when that didn't work, Jesus was not taken in. He understood who he was dealing with. He understood that he was dealing with a wily opponent. 
When that didn't work, what did the devil do? Well, he couldn't bring Jesus to doubt. He tried to entice Jesus with all of those things that we find to be so glamorous and so attractive. He tried to entice him with power, with importance, with prestige, with glory. When Jesus said, it is written, and it is written, and it is written, the devil finally took him, we're told, verse 8, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will but fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. For those of you who went through the study that we did on the book of Acts, you may recall that toward the end of the book of Acts, after Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem, he was taken for three years and imprisoned at Caesarea Maritima. Remember that? And it was from there that he appealed to Caesar, and ultimately he would be transferred on a boat and a ship, and eventually he would make his way to Rome. But while he was imprisoned there in Caesarea Maritima for three years, basically without a trial, because the Roman governor really didn't know what to do with him. Finally, that Roman governor was replaced. The new governor came in. The new governor was a man of action. He knew that there was a Roman citizen that had been held there without trial. He knew that was a violation of Roman law. And so he decided that Paul had to be dealt with. But he was not Jewish. He didn't understand a great deal about this new territory that he was to govern. And so we're told that he asked King Herod and his wife Bernice to come in and listen to Paul, listen to Paul's testimony so that he might know when he sent him up to Rome to the emperor what charges he should send with Paul. And I love the way the story is told. We're told at that point the king and his wife, his queen, who incidentally was also his half-sister, but that's a whole other matter. But the king and the queen and the Roman governor and all of these officials, military officials, public officials, merchants, and so forth, were told they all came in to this courtroom to hear Paul, and I love the way it's described, they came with great pomp. Now you know what pomp is, don't you? It's what the British do better than anybody else. Pomp and ceremony, pomp and circumstance. And let's be honest, we love that sort of thing. That's one of the reasons I love Charleston. It's, it's got that pomp, that old world pomp and ceremony, and we love that sort of thing. That's why we like to go to Buckingham Palace and watch the changing of the guards and watch the lifeguards gallop down the mall with their polished helmets and breastplates and swords drawn. Man, there's nothing quite like it. Makes you want to go home to mother. Uh, yeah. Overthrow democracy and go back home to the monarchy. It's a marvelous thing. But do you know what the word is there in the book of Acts? The Greek word for pomp? It's the Greek word phantasia. It's the word from which we get fantasy. That all of these things that impress us all of these things that we think are of value and significance, the power, the prestige, the money, the position, the houses, the boats, the cars, all of that stuff, the New Testament says it's but fantasy. 
It's passing away. It doesn't last. It is not eternal. It is here for a time. Buy the most expensive car you can find out there. Get the car of your dreams. And in 20 years, it's going to be rusted out. Build the house of your dreams. And sooner or later, it's going to need a new roof. And it's going to have wood rot. The reality is, nothing in this world lasts. It simply does not last. It is all fantasy. It does not endure. And these are the things the devil tells us, you've got to have these things in order to be happy. You'll never be content unless you do have them. You'll never be respected. You'll never be regarded. You'll never be PLU. You know what PLU is? Years ago when I was in Buford, we, had a we were at a cocktail party. And a man came up to me. And he said, oh, have you met so-and-so? He's new to the community. I said, no. He said, well, you need to get to know him. And I said, why is that? He said, oh, because he's PLU. I'd heard of the PLO, but I had no idea who PLU. I said, well, what's PLU? He said, people like us. And I was absolutely appalled, number one, that he said it. And I was absolutely appalled that he lumped me together with him. That's what we're told, if you're not in with that crowd, if you're not a member of that organization, if you are not PLU, what? You'll never be happy. But how much of this lasts, my friends? Empires rise and fall, they wax and they wane, they do not last. Nothing on this earth lasts. This is how the devil operates, you see. He comes to plant that seed of doubt in our mind, and if that doesn't, then he says, well, you need this in order to be successful, in order to be happy, and the reality is that none of that really matters at all in an eternal sense. In fact, with Jesus, it was quite the opposite. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn for just a moment to Philippians chapter 2. You want to know what it is to be a Christian? I'm going to show you what it means to be a Christian. And you know that the word Christian means Christ one. A Christian is simply a little Christ, and here's what it looks like. Paul writes, chapter 2, verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In short, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, have the mind of Christ. What was the mind of Christ? He writes in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing and took the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
The critical phrase there for our purposes today is this. Though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now why is that significant? Because you and I live in a culture where we are perfectly willing to let go of something good provided, provided that something better is coming along. Isn't that true? Who's going to let go of something good if something better is not coming along? So we're ready to let go of a good car if there's a better car coming along. We're ready to let go of a good refrigerator if there's a better refrigerator that comes along. We're ready to let go of a good television set if a better television is coming along. And we're, better to let, we're ready to let go of a good spouse if there's a better one coming along. That's what we think, isn't it? I mean, this is how we operate in the world today. I'm looking for the newer and for the better. What's the new model? But our mind is to be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You see, the point that Paul is making there is that Jesus had the very best. He was equal with God. You can't get any better than that. But he did what? He let it go. He let it go. He let the best go for us and for our sake. And if we are to be his followers, that's what you and I are called to do. Now, is that an easy thing to do? You know how they used to catch monkeys in the 19th century? The most humane way to catch a monkey in the jungle in the 19th century was they would take a jar, a narrow-throated jar, filled with colored beads or marbles and they would tether it to the ground. And monkeys are very curious creatures, curious George. They're also very greedy creatures. And monkeys would take their little paws and they would stuff it down in that narrow-throated jar and they would grasp those colored beads and they'd try to pull their fist out and it would be stuck in that narrow-throated jar. And the monkey would be able to hear the gamekeeper coming through the brush. And he'd get panicky. Now all, the, all that the monkey has to do in order to be free is what? Let it, go. Let it go! But as I said, monkeys are greedy creatures and they will not let it go. The gamekeeper would simply come along, snatch them up, break the jar, and take them off into captivity. And let me tell you, that's exactly how the devil works in our lives offers us all of these things and we grasp them and we hold on to them because we think they're so important and that we're never going to have happiness, we're never going to be content, we'll never have peace without them, and so we hold on to them. And what happens? The devil comes and takes us captive. Now this is how the devil worked with Jesus. <laughs> you ever experienced this in your own life? How many of you have ever experienced what I'm talking about in your own life? If you're not raising your hand, you're lying today because it's, we've all experienced it. We've all been there and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, the question is, how do you triumph over this? How do we beat this? Because the temptation comes to us on a daily basis. How in the world do we prevail? Well, it's helpful to look at Christ's response here. 
Because if we are Christ ones, if we are little Christians, then we are called to triumph in the same way that he triumphed here. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to the end of the book of Ephesians for just a second. And I'm delighted to see you bringing your Bibles and don't be afraid to mark them up. Don't add to them necessarily. I mean, your own, but you can certainly mark them up, highlight them. We need to, as I said, hide God's Word in our hearts. Otherwise, we won't know when the devil comes and tries to trick us whether or not we can, what, we're, what we believe is trustworthy. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, the apostle writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's Paul's point but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, Paul makes it very clear we're engaged in a battle. It's a spiritual battle. We've already talked about that. It's a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the temptation is great. If he can't get us by causing us to doubt God's word, he's going to get it by enticing us with all of the things that the world offers. How are we supposed to withstand? Paul says, put on the armor. If you're in battle, you better prepare yourself. No soldier goes off into battle. No nation, if it cares for its soldiers, cares for its fate, sends its soldiers off into battle without training them and equipping them. And we're told that God has supplied us with a spiritual armor. Now, we don't have the time to go into all of the pieces of the armor. If you want to learn about that, come to the Ephesians class on Sunday morning. And we'll talk specifically about the various pieces. But there's one piece in particular that I want you to notice today. And that is the last piece of armor that Paul mentions, which is the sword of the Spirit. Which he describes as the Word of God. Now, what's significant about the sword is that every other piece of armor that the apostle mentions, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, all of those things are for what? Defense. They're for defense. They're to protect you. There's only one piece of equipment that is mentioned in that catalog that actually is for both defense, to fend off the blows of the enemy, but also to strike back at the enemy, and that's what? The sword. The sword, which is, we're told, what? The Word of God. The Word of God. So when Jesus was assaulted by the devil on this occasion, when he was being tested to see whether he would stand, what did he do? He put on the armor. And in particular, we're told, he took up the sword of the Spirit. Look again at Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The devil will oftentimes come to you in one of two occasions. Number one, when you're weak and worn down. 
Oftentimes that's when he's going to come because that's when you're vulnerable. That's when your guard is down. We've all been there. But oftentimes he comes after moments of great triumph. That was also true in Jesus' life. He had just had this coronation service. He'd just been declared to be God's son. But it's when we're on the top of the world that oftentimes the devil comes, isn't it? You ever had those moments? That always happens with me. I'll have a top-of-the-world experience, and the next thing that will happen is that something will come that will just pop that balloon. I remember when I was teaching a Bible study in uh, St. Helena's in Buford several years ago, and they used to post them on the uh, website, and um, they would always on the website put a picture of the person who was teaching the class. So they put my picture up there. And there was this young, attractive woman, um, young mother in my class, and, and she came. It was a midweek Bible study, and she was the youngest one in the class, only in her uh, 20s, very attractive. And she came up to me, and she said, um, I, I listened to your, um, your, your Bible study last week. I wasn't here. And, and she, said, I, I, she said, I just got a question for you. And by the way, she was telling this, I thought I was going to get this huge compliment. And so my head was beginning to swell like this, you know. And um, she said, um, I saw your picture there on the website. I said, yes. She said, when was that picture taken? About 15 years ago? Uh, I just went, I mean, it just drained me. You know, that's how the devil works. Oftentimes. It just, it's just deflating. And sometimes it's of a far more serious nature than that, and we all know it. And the devil comes and said to him, If you are the Son of God, if, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered what? It is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written. And Jesus answered him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In verse 10, the devil came to him and says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus answered him, verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for what? It is written. Three times Jesus is tempted. Three times he responds what? It is written. It is written. It is written. What has he done? He's taken up the sword of the Spirit, you see, which is the word of God. And that ultimately is what drives the devil away. That is what forces him away. It is this idea that Jesus is wielding the sword over and over again. Do you have the sword of the Spirit? This is the reason why we need to be a people who read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Bible. Because that's your only real weapon against the enemy. It's not your own strength. It's not your own piety. The only thing you have is that which God has equipped you with, which is his word. But I want you to notice something here. While Jesus uses the word, so does the enemy. Did you notice that? 
In other words, Jesus is not the only one who knows how to wield the sword. The devil knows how to wield the sword. When Jesus wields the sword and says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5 says, The devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Because Jesus, it is also written, For he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91. which tells us that the devil knows the scripture too. Now, of course, what the devil was doing, however, was taking that passage out of context. And you know what? If you take a passage of any book, but particularly of the Bible, out of its context, you can make it say absolutely anything that you want it to say. When Kristen was expecting our first child, and she was nine months pregnant. We were living in Charleston here at the time, 20-some years ago. And uh, she was big. I mean, all of our kids were big. We never had a single child. Don't repeat this. I'll be in the doghouse for years. But we never had an, a single child under nine pounds. And she had them all naturally. So she was, she's not a big woman, but the big babies. And uh, on this particular occasion, we were at the mall in North Charleston in the Disney store probably buying something to prepare for this baby to come. And there was this woman that walked by me. Now, this is the truth. I did not even really look at her. <laughs> well, when you're nine months pregnant, you're really sensitive. And she was really sensitive. And on this particular occasion, as this woman walked by, and I just, you know, smiled and said, hello, Kristen came up to me and she said, remember what the Bible said. And I said, what did the Bible say? And she said, if your eye offends me, I will pluck it out. <laughs> now, that is not exactly what the Bible said. Well, it did say something like that, but it was sort of taken out of context, you see, to serve her purposes. And that is exactly what the devil does here. He takes this passage. It is written. It is true. It is in the Scripture. And he takes it out of context in order to twist it. Which tells us, my friends, it's not enough to have a sword. It's not enough to have a Bible in your house. This is not some sort of magical talisman. It's not enough to have some vague knowledge of what the scriptures say. A sword is no good, my friends, if you do not know how to fence. A sword is absolutely no good to you if you do not know how to wield it. And I submit to you, this is one of the problems with many people who've grown up in mainline Protestant denominations. Their knowledge of the scriptures is practically nil. I've met people over the course of my ministry who will say to me, you know, to be honest with you, I've grown up in the church all my life, but I never knew a thing about the Bible. Well, if you don't know a thing about the Bible, regardless of the fact that you've been raised in the church, when the temptation comes, when the enemy assaults, what are you going to do to fend him off? It's not the sword. It's your ability to use it.
Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm a little bit behind the curve here. That's okay. It's never too late to begin to read, to mark, to learn, to inwardly digest. And the more you learn, the more you practice, the better you will become in wielding it when the enemy assaults, because he will. Sometimes when you're on top of the world, sometimes when you are down and exhausted, but guaranteed he will come. The old hymn put it well, but still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. I want you to know three things here as we finish up this section. First of all, I want you to understand, just as Jesus faced a battle, we face the same battle. We face the same kind of temptations. And the devil is a mighty foe. He's always looking for an opportunity. Peter, in one of his writings, says that he is like a roaring lion prowling about looking for someone to devour. He doesn't sleep, my friends. This is an enemy that does not sleep. Which means that you and I need to do what? Well, first of all, what we need to do is we need to put on the armor. That's true. But that means we need to put on the armor daily. You don't strap it on on Sundays and think, well, I'll be all right for the rest of the week. You put on that helmet of salvation, that breastplate of righteousness, you take up that shield of faith, you have your feet fitted with the gospel of peace, and you take that sword of the Spirit in hand daily because your battle is a daily struggle. How many of you have ever gone a single day without being tempted in one way or the other? Boy, if you have, you are so much better than me. Looking out at you, sometimes I get tempted just being up here. The struggle comes to us daily. So we have to put on the armor daily. We have to take up the sword of the Spirit, which means we need to know the Word of God. And finally, as much as possible, we need to flee the temptation. We need to flee temptation. You know that's how the Bible describes it? That's one of the reasons why we pray, lead us not into temptation. Now, we're never always going to be able to avoid temptation. But we're not supposed to go out and seek temptation, thinking, well, I'm equipped, I'm ready, I'm capable, I'm stewing for a fight. Because as I said, the enemy is more powerful than you are as an individual, more powerful than I am as an individual. So we shouldn't go out looking for a fight. Sometimes it comes looking for us, and we need to be ready for it when it does. But otherwise, the Bible says when it comes to temptation, we are supposed to do what? Flee temptation. An alcoholic understands very well that if he is afflicted with this disease called alcoholism, it does no good to go into Tommy Condon's and say, I'll just have a Sprite. Because the minute that he walks through the door, he is what? Submitting himself to the temptation. If he doesn't go in there, he can't be tempted, you see. And that's why the Bible says, flee temptation. You've heard me talk about the evil day before. 
The Bible talks about the evil day. What's the evil day? The evil day is that day when your desires and your opportunities meet. There are those moments in lives when we have the desire to sin, but not the opportunity. There are those other times when we have the opportunity to sin, but we don't really have the desire. The evil day is when the desire and the opportunity meet, and you never know when that's going to happen. And so we are told to flee temptation, daily suit up, put on the armor, and take up the sword of the Spirit, that when the enemy comes, we will be ready to make our stand against him. That's the first thing. Understand you have the same battle as the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of us. Second thing to remember is this. We have the same choice as Jesus Christ. You might call this Jesus and the devil. But really what the temptation of Jesus is about is God or the devil. Because that is the choice that is set before every single one of us. It is a choice between following God and God's way. That's what Jesus was facing. The promise was that Jesus would be glorified. Where was he going to be glorified in God's plan? On the cross. There's no place in all of history where God was more glorified than on the cross. The devil was promising him glory how? Another way. An easy way. And that's what the world wants to give us. The easy glory. And so Jesus had to make a choice between glory God's way or that fleeting glory of the world, that fantasy. And you and I are faced with precisely the same choice, one of two ways. Theologians refer to this as the doctrine of the two ways, and it's no more clearly spelled out anywhere than in the book of Deuteronomy. So keep your finger there in Matthew and turn, if you will, just for a moment to Deuteronomy, chapter 30. Not hard to find. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There you go. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, I want you to listen to how this is described. Beginning at verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Life and good? or death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in your land. But if your heart turns away, you take the other path, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve Him. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish you shall not live long in the land that you are going over into Jordan to enter and possess. I call all heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. We face the same battle and we have the same choice. And that's what every choice when it comes to sin and temptation is all about. It's about following God and His way or it's about following the enemy and his way. It's as simple as that. One path leads to life. It may be struggle in this life. It may be difficult in this life. It may be sacrifice in this life, but it is life eternal. 
or it's following the world now with all of its attractions, all of its pleasures, all of its enchantments, and finding that in our seeking to save our souls, we actually lose them. We have the same battle, we have the same choice, and finally, we can have the same victory. How can we have the same victory as Jesus Christ? Because Paul in 1 Corinthians says, there is no temptation that has ever afflicted you that is in any way new. It's not like you're facing a battle that no one else in history has ever faced before. Others have faced it, in particular the Lord Jesus Christ faced the battle as well. All of the cramping restrictions of family life, all of the fear of death, the desertion by those closest to him, betrayal, you name it, whatever you've experienced, he's experienced it too and he triumphed in spite of it. We have the same weapons that the Lord had. We have the same armor. We have the same scriptures. And finally, we have one thing more. We have God the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian today, Jesus Christ dwells within you. So it's not just your battle, it's His battle. He fights for you. This, this is so wonderful. This is what God does. He comes and He fights for you. This is why 1 John says, Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. There is no temptation, there is no enemy that will ever come against you that is greater than the one who dwells within you if you are a Christian. And all the resources that were available to Jesus Christ are available to you and he can muster them for your defense. Martin Luther put it so well in that great hymn. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. I wish I could read it. <laughs> What's that next line up there? For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Second stanza is important too. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord, Sabaoth His name from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure one little word shall fail him. What is that little word? That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit, the one who dwells within you, is greater than the one who's out there in the world. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, let it go. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom 
is forever. You're in a battle, my friends. Understand it. And two ways are set before you. Follow the ways of the world, which seems so attractive now, but lead to death and destruction and misery and pain. Or sometimes misery and pain and sacrifice now that leads to life eternal and to that place where God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. It's a battle. Let's put on the armor. Let us fight the good fight. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this story of the Lord's temptation in the wilderness. We thank you that Jesus was tested, tested by the Spirit, and though tempted by the devil, he triumphed. And we thank you, Lord, that we are not left alone as orphans in this world, but that same Jesus Christ is with us to guide us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. Come, Holy Spirit, fill us with your grace. Put upon us that armor of light that we may be able to take our stand and not only survive, but triumph for your glory and praise. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.